What do you want to banter about? I don't know. COVID? (laughs) (laughs) So I I saw um, Sun Little last night. Where? He was in Vermont. What? Yeah. He was up he was up visiting a friend and he, and he texted me. He was like, "Hey, I'm oh, going to be in your saw him. Oh, okay. Yeah. I thought you meant went to a show. I'm like, "What?" No, 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 no. Oh, that's he, awesome. he he came and we had a little socially distanced barbecue in our backyard. That's awesome. Yeah. How's great. he doing? He was great. He great. brought he brought his daughter. It was it was really fun. Oh, it was really my nice. God, that sounds great. Yeah. It's weirdly, okay, look. COVID is terrible. I hate these circumstances. But then it's also just like everything else is exposing like, oh, like there are certain people like you're cool with and, and you can you can, you know, rekindle relationships and stuff like that. And you're like because you're thinking through like, oh, who are the people I really want to see? Because it's not an automatic thing now. Yes. You know? Yes. I, that, I've had this conversation with a few friends. Um, the, the silver lining in all this is there are plenty of relationships that will go will will be vaccinated with covid um i will never talk to people again and not just because you know there are definitely people that have been the anti-maskers that are in my right. life that i'll never i will never talk to again um but also just the people that were kind of lingering around that like i don't really miss them yeah i wish them well yeah no, no there's I've, nothing um, like negative i've it's focused just, my yeah. friendships i've i've right. gotten closer to the people that i want to be close to yeah. and actually rekindled some um friends that i have not talked to in years that yeah. reached out and then we're like why did we stop talking right um, right exactly exactly uh, we'll come out with less friends but better friendships and yeah. i'm all for that yeah and so we'll speaking be- of rekindling we got we got freddie today yes so yes, let's get right that. into it because we're going to want to talk for four hours and we, we we're supposed to be, you know, a 45 minute on a podcast and we've maybe had one well, or two. It so. depends on the guest. And when you have good guests, you got to just let them talk. I know. All right, let's do it. This is no politics at the dinner table. I'm Tony Biancasino. And I'm Amit Prakash. Today we have old friend, uh, writer, education scholar and leftist social critic, Freddie DeBoer. He's got a book out that came out today actually so i'm really psyched to to read about it because you know teaching that's what we do teaching well you do yeah true all right let's get into it it. freddie good to see you man yeah it's good to see you too long time yeah i know i know so you're still in Brooklyn? Still in Brooklyn, unfortunately. Yeah, um, <laughs> uh, you know, living the the plague lifestyle as everybody else is. Yeah, yeah. Are are you left Brooklyn College though, right? Yes. Uh, okay. Just last just last month. Yeah. So, oh wow, wow. Yeah, I am. I mean, I've applied to some full timey jobs, so maybe I'll do that. But I have. Um, I got a big ghostwriting contract, which helps a nice. lot. Nice. Nice. Uh, which, of course, I'm legally not allowed to talk about. But, uh, but it, so we'll lead with that. Yeah, fin- financially that helps a lot. And I'm, you know, I, I just picked up a ton of little gigs, like grading papers online and stuff like yep. that. Just, yeah. I just figured I'll just build up as many little things as possible, and we'll see what happens. Nice, but, nice. Oh man. All right. Well, um, I ordered your book. It hasn't come out yet. You know, I mean, today. obviously, because it came out today. Yeah. Right? It's like yeah. released today. Yeah. So, but I pre-ordered it already. So, yeah. hopefully, it's going to be in my mailbox soon. Yeah. So, um, so I'm very psyched about the. You know, I was 
for I mean, I, mean, I consider like I identify myself as a teacher, right? So I've, right. I've taught in high school and college for the past 20 years. Right. Um, and so I'm very psyched to read this book. Um, so just for everybody who, you know, it's coming out today and obviously nobody had a chance to read it yet. So could you just give like a brief summary? There we go. Cult, the Cult of Smart by Freddie DeVore. Um, could you give like a brief Tracy summary of you know what your argument is and and uh, and then we can go from there. So sure. So the, the the cult of smart that I'm describing is a social tendency to treat intelligence as an academic ability, how well you do in school, as the sole determiner of your worth as a human being. It's also a set of policies and political movements that are dedicated to pushing everyone into college treating education as the one great social equalizer, the, the key to um, income mobility. Uh, and uh, the book is a description of how that came about, um, how it manifests itself, and why it's so messed up, why uh, it's messed up culturally and socially to treat people as though their academic ability is the only thing that matters about them, but also why, structurally speaking, the goal of pushing everyone into college is a huge mistake and it's bound to backfire. Okay. All right. There's a lot there. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a bombshell argument, which I expect nothing less. Um, so, uh, Tony, do you, do you, I have a, like a whole list of questions, but I don't know if you, you, you want to react at all, or, or shall I just You start going? up. You start up. Okay. I've got plenty, okay. but let's, let's stay okay. focused. I can so, get on track very So, the, one of the things that, and you said you interrogate this in the book, um, is that how that idea that, education is supposed to be a vehicle for social leveling comes about right that what is the sort of historical origins of that um and it seems to be like both parties believe this right in in america so you know whether it's and it's like almost like a religious faith in it um that whether it's betsy devos with like literal religious school private schools and you know that'll be great for american kids or Arnie Duncan, who believes in charters, which are publicly funded private schools, also believes that this will do some social leveling. How did that get in? How did that come to burrow into all these people's minds? Is that that's the function of education? So there's a few things. I mean, you know, as a Marxist, I believe that um, ideas follow events instead of the other way around, right? And so, structural changes to the economy dictate how we interpret the world, and then our, our culture sort of evolves to fit that. So. Um, I mean, in the book, I identify the earliest beginnings of this is the period of classical liberalism with people like John Locke, which is uh, the world that starts to change uh, after the medieval period and coming into the early modern period where uh, you have all of these forces that are privileging the masses against the nobility. So one of the big ones is like the Black Death, the, the plague wiped out so many people that in fact there was insufficient workforce uh, in the world. And so... Uh, that gave the people who remained, the workforce that remained, uh, an advantage, a market advantage, because there was just a constrained supply of people, right? And so, um, and then you've got the beginning of the capitalist class, the merchant class, which starts to claw power away from the landed nobility because you've now got this new vector of currency. So people start, I mean, the uh, currency starts to take on a greater portion of power compared to manpower, compared to agriculture, etc. And so, in other words, you have the beginning of this class of people who are newly empowered, uh, who don't 
any longer have uh, the necessity to sort of go through the traditional feudal system where you're born in a particular place and you live there. So the very idea of social mobility begins to be to, to be born in, a, uh, in an era in which you know social mobility was still sort of a, an outlier or a, something curious. And so John Locke and people like him create this cult of the individual because they say, well, look, uh, in order to, to support a society, in order to be, to be seen as um, a part of a stable society and to want to be part of that society, you have to believe that you as an individual will have a decent chance of making it in that society. And so all these ideas of, of initial original rights sort of come out uh, in contrast to, again, like the nobility feudal system where you're born in a particular place and that's sort of where you stay. Um, and so what happens is that uh, over time, this cult of the individual results in, a, in a, a, a philosophy of social mobility, even when there isn't a lot of social mobility that exists. Um, and, and where you can see this play out in the 20th century is in John Dewey, who uh, I respect, but who I blame a lot of this thinking for you, because John Dewey says, well, okay, look, we've got this uh, society where uh, we believe in the cult of the individual and we've, we've absorbed this idea that individuals should have the ability to move around in the social landscape. Uh, we, we, we believe that that is something that's important, but we don't have the tools to actually make that happen, right? Uh, we look out at the world and even though the, the formal nobility is gone, uh, there's not such a, such a thing uh, as a lot of obvious social mobility and economic mobility. The thing is, is that, so, so John Dewey says, well, the key to this is education, right? If we are going to take a, uh, a viewpoint of the world that says that we want people to be constantly exceeding their station, for there to be a lot of movement around in who's up and who's down economically, if we want to do that, um, we need a vehicle, and education for John Dewey is that, is that vehicle. And so he begins to talk about this. He creates this doctrine of anyone can succeed as long as they're properly educated. Um, a man should be judged based on their own performance within this, this particular system. Um, and uh, in, you know, this will be the way in which society sort of rescues itself from uh, a uh, immobile social and economic system. The problem is, is that, and, and that has persisted, right? Like the mm -hmm. idea of education as being uh, the great level or equalizer or the ability, education providing the individual the ability to move around their station is American uh, gospel now. In the book, I quote Obama, George W. Bush, uh, Clinton, George H.W. Bush, I think I quote Reagan, all of them saying education is the key to social mobility and to, and to having a good life. The problem is, is that um, John Dewey was writing at a time when the, even the, I, the very basic idea of uh, everyone having access to public schools was still very new, right? John right. Dewey is writing at a time when it's, it's still common early in his career for children just not to go to school. And um, I think the... I'm sorry, for, for reference, this is like the 1910s, right? This yeah, it's like, like the 10s yeah. and the teens. And in fact, yeah. I think, uh, and I mean, there are states that don't get, uh, who don't pass comp compulsory and free public schooling until this decade. So it's, he's writing at a time in which education is truly un unequally distributed, where it was perfectly common for someone to have never had an, like a third grade education. The idea that education is still the key to social mobility is baked into the system. But now we're talking about a system where better than 90% of people complete high school, where a third of American adults has a college degree. And so this, the landscape has changed. 
And the basic problem, one of the basic problems that I identify is simply this. So I just said that 90 plus percent of people have a, a high school diploma. Well, it turns out that having a high school diploma doesn't do much for you anymore in, in the market, in the education, in the, excuse me, the employment market. Going to, to someone saying, I have a high school diploma is not something that's going to get you a job. Well, the, of course that's true, right? Because we have now made the degree so common that it is no longer a distinguishing characteristic, right? In other words, you, when you are going to an employment market, you are competing with everybody else in that employment market. And so you say, I have this thing about me, this, this skill, this ability, this credential that makes me different. But of course, a high school diploma can't make you different when better than 90% of people have one, right? In other words, the market advantage of having that high school education has declined almost to zero, right? And, uh, and that's true even if you think, like I believe in the intrinsic value of that high school education. I think everybody should get a high school education, but I don't pretend that it's a high school education can help you get you the good life. Well, now the now things have shifted, right? So now it's a college education will get you the, the good life. Um, right now, there's a robust wage and unemployment p uh, premium to having a college degree. In other words, having a college degree is a serious for the average uh, graduate. The, having a college degree is a major uh, positive factor in your employment outlook. Um, the problem is, is if we actually institute this policy of trying to get everyone a college diploma. The same thing will happen that happened with the high school diploma, which is when everyone has something in a market, that thing has no uh, monetary value, right? If if a significant majority well, of then Americans, you just need a master's, right? Well, there you go. I mean, and, and that and that is even indeed even happening to a degree today, right? Credential creep, degree creep. Um, what a world where everyone has a college diploma, an America where everyone has a college diploma, is not some like kumbaya, wonderful paradise where everybody has this economic advantage. It's in a world where everyone is in a fierce and terrible competition with each other because everyone has the diploma and so it no longer has a market advantage. And again, that's independent of like the intrinsic value, right? That's a, that's a separate thing. Mm -hmm. The market value will go to zero. And we know this empirically, not just theoretically. I'm not just spouting this off. In 2006, the National Bureau of, Bureau of Economic Research put out a paper and looked at the, uh, the college wage premium from 1890 to 2005. And what they found, and this is their word, not mine, it was to a remarkable degree, you can explain the college wage premium simply by looking at the ratio between number of jobs that require a, high school, a, a college diploma and the number of people who have college diplomas. Right? Wow. In other words, the more people with college diplomas, the more depressing value there is on the, on the, the wage premium. And the thing is, it's like, it's great to have empirical confirmation of that, but it's also like, of course that's true, right? It's, it's just it's basic supply and demand. And so this is my very long-winded way of saying, um, we have very close to like policy unanimity in this country that we should be pushing everyone into the college path. Uh, the, in the think tank world, it is almost, uh, un almost unheard of for people to be opposed to that. In the educational research world, it's often assumed as a matter of course. In our politics, uh, like I said, Republican and Democrat presidents alike have uh, over and over again stressed the importance of, co of college degree. And uh, for that simple reason that of supply and demand is one of the major reasons I think that's bound to fail. So, I mean, it kind of makes sense that all these people would push it because they have all those provinces 
are they've gone through that credentialing process. So of course it worked for them. So um, it, it should work. It should be universal, even though it's very particular. Yeah. Tony, go ahead. I, I, I was just actually while, while you were talking, Freddie. I was up in Vermont a couple of weeks ago, and Ahmet and I were like sitting outside talking, and I'm like. I'm a college dropout, so I spent over four years in multiple colleges, <laughs> and I had a blast. The social aspect of it, I absolutely loved. Um, the required courses, I hated. Um, it just wasn't for me. It's not the way I learned. So I was saying to Amit, you know, wouldn't it be amazing if there there was a way somebody could could have some sort of like a history camp? People that really want to learn history, where you go for like five months and you study with great historians and, and you, you get a, a very specific education while also like learning how to farm or like stuff where you actually have some skills when you walk out and it would and it would probably make you a better historian than someone that has to go to a four year college and take half of these credits that have nothing to do with history because... Mm-hmm. I always found the big problem was like, even at the the last college I quit, which was my favorite one, I was a liberal arts, a liberal arts uh, major, whatever, and I had to take philosophy. (laughs) That was like taking Mandarin to me. There was no way I'm getting past that. So what is the, I guess my point is, what what are some solutions to this besides the vocational, you know, go become a carpenter who, you know, some of those men and women make hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, but nobody in high school is like, you should become a carpenter. So, I mean, I, I think that, um, I mean, to piggyback on that point, um, one of the major downsides of college being essentially compulsory, right? In other words, people feeling that they need to go to college or to have the good life. And, and, I, and I've experienced this as a college teacher many times. People who don't want to be there are there. And that is a waste of their time. It's a waste of the professor's time. It's a waste of resources. Um, I, I've had several students in the course of my college teaching career who would just straight up say, I don't want to be here, but I, there's nothing else for me to do. You know, I come from New England and uh, I mean, people always think about deindustrialization having uh, hurt uh, the Midwest, and the Rust Belt and stuff like that. And that's true, but deindustrialization also devastated the New England in the Northeast. Um, and uh, there's just, you know, you drive around my hometown and there's all these shuttered factories, you know, that were 50 years earlier had been providing people with all these other opportunities. Um, so what's the solution to keeping people from feeling like they have to do things that they don't want to do? Well, in general, one of the major arguments in my book is we should dramatically lo- uh, loosen standards so that people can craft different paths to a high school diploma or to a college diploma. In other words, uh, Standardization, like the Common Core, uh, is to me the enemy because it implies that there's only one sort of way in which someone would want to approach school, and there's only one sort of set of values that they should be absorbing, um, and that hurts a lot of people for a lot of reasons. So you said not liking philosophy, and I think just not liking philosophy is a fine reason for you not to take philosophy. I mean, I be- you know I believe in certain sense in the liberal idea, the liberal arts ideal of being a well rounded human being. But I also believe that um, we've got a, a system where a lot of people come in, take on a bunch of student loan debt, and then never graduate. And so they have the debt and without the economic advantage of the degree. Um, so loosening standards would be one big thing. I, you know, So one of the things I talk a lot about in the book is um, just the utter devastation that are wreaked by math standards in high school. 
So there's a book that came out, I don't know, five or six years ago by a guy named Andrew Hacker called The Math Myth. And he's an economist and he shows um, an enormous number of students are being left behind by not being able to pass algebra. Uh, and I think so it's me right here where I was thinking about. <laughs> yeah, me, me too. Me too. I, I, I struggled so much with, with college algebra. Um, and uh, his point is like, look, this is an artificial standard that hurts a lot of people. And we could loosen that standard by, for example, one of the things I talk about in the book is letting people take a statistics class instead of an algebra class. That like abstract mathematics are, of course, super important for like human beings. But it doesn't follow that an individual human being has to take algebra any more than an individual human being should have to take um, should have to take uh, philosophy. And I mean, we look at the numbers um, in, in Hacker's research. He found, for example, that in in Arizona, um, better than two thirds of students were failing to pass their uh, math requirement. And what happens then is that you you know when you have these scenarios, is you put a ton of pressure on the system. So. Um, when people sort of are failing their math requirements, you can either allow them to stay back a year, in which case their chance of dropping out dramatically increases. If you, if you stay back a year, then, you, then your, your odds are, of dropping out are, are greatly increased. Or what a lot of people do is you sort of do the gentleman C sort of thing where you let the kid through anyway. So, uh, so I said, you know, Arizona had like, had like two-thirds of their students not passing their math requirement. Well, it turns out that uh, in uh, New York, it's the opposite. Like, better than two-thirds of students are passing their math requirement, which sounds great. The reason that that's true is because in order to pass the math test in New York, you only have to get 33% of the questions right. right? <laughs> wow. So, so, and so this is the question that I think that a lot of people have to say is, okay. That's weird math. We, that's weird math. We can, we can maintain the standard, and a lot of kids will drop out and a lot of kids will be unnecessarily hurt in their high school and college careers. Or we can uh, loosen the standard and let people through in a sense of social promotion where we just want them to sort of uh, go even though they haven't met the standard. What the policy type say is, well, why don't they just pass their math class? To which I would say, I think Andrew Hacker would say, we have an enormous amount of evidence that they can't. So what do we really care about? And one ha there's this there's this great uh, uh, there's this thing called Campbell's law, which I find is really helpful for a lot of situations. So Campbell's law says if you have a quantitative indicator, like say graduation rate, high school graduation rate, the more pressure that you put on that indicator, the more you say got to get that graduation rate up. The more that you have like, state legislatures passing things intended to put pressure on schools to get that graduation rate up, the more that that happens the more distorted the indicator will become. In other words, the more the pressure you put on something, the more fraud there's gonna be, the more fudging of the numbers there's gonna be, the more cooking the books there's gonna be. So it, it turns out that we have a historically high college graduation rate right now. Um, it's never been higher in the history of American public education, the number of kids who are, who are finishing. Better than nine out of 10 now finish, who start now finish. But there's been no movement in any underlying indicator that that would be justified. In other words, state state um, uh, standardized tests and the SAT and various uh, the NAEP, uh, the National Assess Assessment of Educational Progress, none of these are showing that students are having some sort of a, of a significant increase in their uh, performance. 
So why are we seeing this increase in the, in the, the graduation rate? Well, the reason is because you've made graduation rate such an intense focus for so long that you now uh, have people bending the rules. And that's always going to happen, right? The thing about Campbell's Law is it's not like an ethical thing like saying, oh, look at how, how dishonest people are. It's a thing to say, this is just true. It is just the fact that if you make people's jobs reliant on graduation rate, graduation rate will, will rise artificially. And that applies for everything in education. I don't know if I answered your question, but... Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, that's, yeah. definitely. Yeah. Because um, a lot of that, Amit, right, is, is... And you've both been teachers. Amit, you've taught high school and, and college. But everything you're saying is like, wow, it's just like you're, you're, ta you're talking about my experience with education. I, I cannot pass high-level math. I mean, my brain, I have dyslexia, I have uh, auto, all types of, I have so many uh, learning disabilities, we can have a couple podcasts on them, but I just can't pass math. I mean, I, I, I had two, my parents paid for tutors, I did everything. I, when I'm with the tutor, I could start to get it, but this next day in class, it's gone. Um, but a lot of teachers would just give me the C because I I excelled socially, so I would be really nice with teachers. I would voice my frustrations, and and there's this like unwritten rule, I guess, with nice with normal teachers, like that kid can't pass this class. Like, give him a fucking C, get him out the door. Otherwise, you know, you're gonna have a a big group of problem children that can't get out of high school. And let's let's so let's imagine. So you you know you have these these learning disabilities that make it difficult for you to pass college. Um, I would loosen and change standards. I wouldn't. I don't like the phrase lowering standards, but I like loosening standards so that you can create a college program that works for you and your brain and the way you think and learn, right? right? And, and if you do that, if you allow people to do that, college professors, just like high school teachers, don't have to like you know give you the gentleman C. They don't have to do something that makes them feel dishonest. They can just, you have a program that works for you to get you through the, the institution and to acquire the knowledge that you think is important for your future life. Um, we could do that. But also, let's imagine, let's say, like, let's imagine a world where you said, you know what, I have these learning dis disabilities. I don't like the collegiate environment in terms of the classes. I, socially, it's not a great fit for me, whatever, for, for whatever reason. We could imagine a world where there's like a respected and effective path forward for you to secure a good life, right? Without having to go to college. I mean, this is one of the things like right now, what are the paths available to you if you make the rational decision? You know, college isn't for me. For anybody who says, you know, college just for whatever combination of regions is not for me. What's the reliable path forward for you to get a good life? I mean, there are jobs that don't require college degrees that pay a, a, an income, but uh, they tend to be in sort of niche industries and they tend not to have a particularly high number of people who work for them, right? Like you can be, you can go and you can be an Alaskan crab fisherman if you'd like, you know, and you can make enough money to support yourself. <laughs> but like, that's not exactly a mass phenomenon, you know? And to me, it's just as important, not just having an economy where people have enough uh, leverage over the system where the individual worker has the power to be able to create a life for themselves without going to college but also to have a culture where it, your academic ability is not considered this existential uh, sort of determinant of your worth you know like um, I you know I don't know anyone who would say would just come out and say 
I care a lot about where you go to college. I use that to sort of size you up, right? I certainly would never say that. And yet at the same time, when you hear that someone went to Harvard, even if you don't want to give a shit, you tend to give a shit, right? right. Like even people who don't want to care. It's, they, it's a social fact, right? It's, yeah. it's like that's, it's, it's looming constantly. So even if, even if you do your best to, I don't care about status, I don't care about this, it creeps in. You're like, oh, Harvard. Exactly. Although I, I would assume, I, I can't speak for you, Freddie, but with myself and Amit, it would have the reverse effect if I had <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, You mean where asshole. Kissinger went? Yeah. yeah. But, but look, like, yeah. <laughs> but look, like I, ha- I, am a, I am a lefty who has been, who you know, grew up in the higher education system. I have done all this research into it. I have, in, in the official sense, I could not have a more cynical view on the college admissions process or on Harvard, frankly. Um, but I still notice, you know, mm-hmm. I still care. Uh, I tell, I've told this book, this story on like every podcast, so forgive me anyone who's getting sick of it. But um, I, was at a, I was at Purdue getting my PhD and I was at a cookout with some grad students um, and their families. And there was a grad student and his family there um, from China, uh, a husband and wife and two kids, two boys. And uh, I, we were just sort of milling around, making small talk, and the, the wife was bragging about her older son who was playing, you know. And she was talking about how smart he was and how uh, he uh, uh, was like tops in his class and he was in his school robotics team, whatever, you know, just bragging the way that any parent does, which is fine. Then her younger kid comes running by and he's like making fart noises with his mouth or whatever. And she looks at him and she, she, she says to us, he is maybe not so smart. Um, now... I and the other people standing there kind of, you know, tensed up, like, what? You know, not so smart. What? A parent saying that their kid isn't so smart, you know? Um, it was just, a, it was just felt like this awkward moment, and I, I immediately assumed, oh, something's lost in translation, you know, she's not a native English speaker or whatever. But I was thinking about it later on that day, and here's the thing. If she had said about him, um, he'll never be a great athlete, I, I wouldn't have cared. It wouldn't have registered to me. If she had said, he doesn't have an artistic temperament, I wouldn't have cared. It wouldn't have registered with me. If she had said, um, he doesn't have an ear for music, I wouldn't have cared. I wouldn't have registered for me. Only with smart, right, is that immediately perceived as something existential, right? Everybody standing there thought to themselves, parents don't say that their kids aren't smart. Because if you say that your kid isn't smart, that means that you're casting them out, right? That means that you're saying that they'll never have a good life. It means you're saying that they don't have worth. And that's the coldest moment. Like right there, the intrinsic and unchosen belief that the ability to excel in school is the only ability that matters. And that, I think, is baked so deeply into the cake of American society at this point. Um, people don't even recognize that it's there. So we talked and you described how education has failed in terms of social leveling, what it was, it's, you know, charter from Dewey and so on. Um, but what about the other effects that it's, it re- reproduces a social order in a certain way, right? That, that with this sort of, you know, chasing Africa credentials and then some credentials are forced, you know, there's the Harvard credential versus, you know, the community college credential. Um, and then only certain people can pay for things to even have an iota of a chance to get into Harvard, which means tutors and this, that, and the other. 
Um, so in your book and in your thinking, do you, do you explore, like, not only does it fail at social leveling, but it reproduces this unequal social order pretty systematically, I, I, I would think, but. Yeah. So uh, I got a call from a lawyer, of a reporter, excuse me, um, a few months ago, three, four months ago, um, for the Seattle newspaper, and uh, she was doing a story, Seattle is dismantling its gifted program. Um, they're dis dismantling their gifted program because it is racially uh, not, uh, uh, racially uh, it's distributed the same way that the student body is. And so she was talking about how all these parents are freaked because uh, their kids aren't going to have a gifted program anymore. And she said, are you concerned? And I said, no, because the thing about gifted kids is they're gifted and they'll be fine, right? Um, one of the major contentions about my book is that not everybody is equally good at school, right? And, and not only is not everybody equally good at school, uh, people are not intrinsically good at school. In other words, there's such a thing as talent that is distributed un unevenly. As I stress over and over the book, I'm not talking about a racial achievement gap. I think the racial achievement gap is the product of the environment, it's the product of racism, it's the product of uh, racial inequality, structural racism, etc. But between individuals, right, different people have different levels of ability at being good at school. And I want to, you know, I use the, the term to call it smart because um, it sounds good, right? But I want to be clear, I'm not talking about intelligence in some broader sense, like, uh, like all the different things we could value in intelligence. I'm just talking about the ability to get through uh, the American schooling system in the early 21st century, right? In other like words... Book smarts. Right, yeah. The, it's a very strange set of skills that you have to pass in order to get through school, which, oh, by the way, are tied to what's considered valuable in the American economy, in the neoliberal economy. So anyway... So I was, you know, I was a substitute teacher for a while in my hometown, which was a trip to go back to those schools, you know. Um, and I would just be observing situations that, the same kind that, ha that were in place when I was a, a student, which is you'd have two kids and in every demographic sense you can think of, they're the same. They're the same racially, they're the same gender, they're the same age. They both live in the same neighborhood. They both have two parents or don't or whatever, the same number of parents, same degree of parental involvement in their life. Um, their environments appear to be the same in every way you can imagine. Uh, by all the demographic categories, they're the same. They get to the, to, the, to the classroom and they are vastly different in their outcomes. Right? For any identical demographic, you pick any demographic slice you want of American life, you will find students who both excel in school and kids who drop out. Right? You're going to find in any demographic slice you want that there's an enormous amount of variation. And in fact, whatever the group di uh, differences between black and white or m male and female, whatever, those are always dwarfed by the, dif by the variation within a group. Um, and my question was always just why? Why did one kid who lived in the same neighborhood and had the same teacher and matched everything with another kid, why did he go to a Ivy League school when another kid dropped out of high school, right? Um, and that conversation cannot be had without admitting to the fact that we have a really enormous body of academic research that demonstrates that your academic aptitude, your ability to go through school in 21st century neoliberalism, uh, is genetically uh, modified, that, that there is a genetic basis, that there is a genetic influence on how well you do in school. This is not 
uh, a very popular line of thinking in America for a variety of reasons. Um, because there, there, well, there's like the Charles Murray version of this, right? Right. right. Yeah. Which, and I would stress that the difference between the Charles Murray version of this is that Charles Murray thinks that there are group genetic variations between these groups. So in other words, Murray is, I mean, he's cagey about, you know, how much of it he would ascribe to it, but Murray is open to and traffics in the idea that the difference between black and white students is genetic. I don't. Um, and I think that there's, it's completely consistent to believe that the racial achievement gap is the product of racism and that individual students uh, excel or, or struggle in, in part because of their, uh, because of their genetic basis, right? Um, and once you believe that, right, if you say that the ability to succeed in school is somewhat partially uh, genetically influenced, and we can always squabble about the degree of the influence, but I would argue that the evidence is overwhelming that there is an influence, um, it kind of kicks the legs out of meritocracy altogether, right? Because the justification for the system is that it's fair because you get out what you put in. That if you're hardworking, then you can uh, succeed, climb the ladder of American success, and you'll be fine. But um, if you believe that there's a substantial portion of your outcomes are determined by your intrinsic ability, your, your genetic code, then the system becomes a rigged game, right? Um, how can we say that a system that impoverishes someone is fair, because that's one of the things our system does, in addition to making people fabulously wealthy, it makes people impoverished. How can we say that that system is fair if a significant portion of the outcome is inf influenced by your genes? Because you don't get to choose your genes. You don't choose your biological parentage. Um, again, for, for the very reason that you mentioned, the Charles, Charles Murray part of the world, a lot of people just want to keep all this stuff at an arm's length. Right. Um, a lot of people say, oh, you're leaving people behind. You're leaving kids behind if you uh, say that they're that don't have the same genetic capacity for doing well in school, although I would argue it's the system that's already leaving them behind. I'm not doing anything. I'm trying to rescue them from that system. Um, and uh, it just seems like a, a, a problem without a policy fix. Um, this is a really amazing moment. So part of why I wrote this book is because I felt that, um, I, and I feel very strongly, that teachers in their unions get a very bad rep. And they are the target of this neoliberal ed reform movement um, in a way that's unjust. Um, and one of the ways it's unjust is that uh, teachers are expected to uh, <clears throat> be filling all of these gaps that are not necessarily able to be filled. Anyway, I'm doing research and I find this website on the RAND from the RAND Corporation. So, yeah, so the RAND Corporation is um, a big time think tank and they're at, like, you know, in the think tank, think tank world, there's almost total unanimity supporting the um, break teachers' unions, uh, support charter schools sort of vision of, of, of ed reform. It, it, is, it is almost universal, which speaks about the, um, uh, the, the do their donor class and how the donors influence these things anyway. So I'm reading a RAND uh, uh, report, and I said something, I something that just I thought was really amazing, which is, uh, although uh, some research indicates that four to eight times, uh, that, that students' uh, individual factors contribute four to eight times as much as their school side factors, uh, there, uh, there are limited policy uh, options to change this. So we focus on school side interventions, okay? Now, 
to me, that's sort of like saying the quiet part out loud because you're admitting that the that this policy intervention is much weaker than the other side, but you just say, well, we don't have a policy way to change that. This is similar like when people talk about parenting differences. Um, people in ed, in ed talk a lot don't want to talk about differences in parent, parenting and the degree to which they change the academic outcomes. And the reason for that is, again, we don't take kids from their parents for being bad at school, so there's no policy intervention, right? And so saying, well, individual students are influenced by their individual factors uh, four to eight times uh, more than, than their school side factors. Uh, so let's take a look at the policy thing. It's like, it's the classic example of you lose your keys and in the dark and you look where the light is rather than when you look dropped where you dropped them, right? In other words, there's like, this is like a tacit acknowledgement that the problem is not actually where you guys are saying it is, but because there's no policy problem, there's no policy uh, solution, excuse me, uh, that, well, let's just pay attention to the schooling anyway. And I think that that is true uh, to a dramatic sense, extent when we talk about American schooling writ large. If you ask the average person, they say that American schools are failing. They tend to say that American schools are failing, but their public schools are doing well, which is a very durable research finding, and I think really interesting. But anyway, if you ask the average parent, they think American public schools are failing. But why they are failing, right? Well, if we have a bunch of students who are on the bottom half of the uh, ability distribution, which we always have, we'll have, we'll always have uh, a, a normal distribution of, of academic ability, um, then we should expect failure to the extent that we see it, right? It is inevitable if we acknowledge that there's a distribution of ability that kids are going to, some kids are going to be, you know, two standard deviations below the mean. That's, that's, it's just, it's inevitable. It's going to happen. Um, and so rather than seeing this as a terrible failure of the, of the teachers and the education system, I say, let's make the stakes for failing much lower. Let's, uh, implement a variety of uh, social programs that make the risks of uh, doing poorly in school much less important, right? Like ultimately the big policy prescription of the book is to just say, okay, if you've got a rigged game, then let's make the outcome of losing at that game less, less uh, potentially harmful, right? Let's give people healthcare no matter what, regardless of their employment situation. Let's uh, have child credits that enable parents to be able to pay, pay for school no matter whether they can get a good job or not. Let's have universal pre-K and after school, not because they're going to raise test scores, which they probably won't, but because they'll give kids a safe and uh, stimulating place to be, right? So we create a world where the stakes of doing badly in school are much lower, so people don't feel forced to go to school. So all those kids who don't actually want to be there don't have to go, so that... Uh, the teachers aren't have put an incredible amount of pressure on them for doing things that they can't possibly do. Just in general, making the world better for people who don't have a college degree um, would do a tremendous amount to sort of making the stakes much lower and making it, the system less harmful. Isn't it just all part of the whole in, uh, um, thought behind being kind of indoctrinated into just being American? Everything is under this tent of patriotism. Um, I can't tell you how many people I talk to that are like, I, I still can't imagine another place in the world I'd, I'd want to be from. And I'm like, well, have you gone other places? Yeah. Uh, there's plenty of places I'd be from. Um, 
we have horrible we have great doctors horrible the, the system sucks we've got great teachers the system sucks um, we have a horrible uh, um, job market even though we have smart people and, and multi-billionaires with big corporations but every moron in this country thinks because they've 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 been been brainwashed by thinking the fact that you are purely American means you're better. You, mm -hmm. you don't need help. You got to earn it yourself. It's there for you. You just got to work hard. And it's ridiculous. And it, it's, it's, you see it now with people won't even put on a fucking mask during a pandemic because people are so easily um, brainwashed in this country because you're born brainwashed um, because you're, you're American. Well, I think, you know, one thing, if I can jump in here is like, Freddie, like the cult of smart seems to be a variation on the theme of the cult of the individual, right? Is is that? Um, and so when I was I was teaching in a in a summer program, um, which was like a college access program um, for you know historically disadvantaged communities and really really talented kids and you know um, from from all over from from Hawaii, Alaska, uh, Native American reservations, all over the place, and there was this ed researcher who came in to watch and see you know how are these kids they're all going to ivies and they're all you know or little ivies and they're doing so well and but they come from you know one kid was li literally living out of his car and you know so like how how is this possible and th this research you probably heard of this guy paul tuff mm -hmm. um this researcher and he and based on what he saw in our classes and a, a bunch of other research he had this whole argument about grit right that that and it's and it's basically very you know um, if you can just put your nose to the grindstone and um, somehow compartmentalize all of the social ills that are assailing you and your family, uh, then uh, you can succeed. And so really, the, it's, it's just a matter of not, you know, inherent intellectual aptitude, but rather tenacity, right? right. That's, that's going to be the way. What do you what do you, what is what is your response to that? So that's just the American gospel right there, right? You know, right. Um, I mean, part of the reason people don't want to hear this is that you know one of the reasons that I wrote the book is because I couldn't imagine anybody like who it would make happy. Like I thought that it would uh, <laughs> offend people from all across the spectrum. You know, you know, conservatives have like this vision of the self-made man. You know, right. so you have to be able to sort of, and uh, you know, liberals want to believe in the equality of everybody. Um, and yeah, your uh, genetic argument is you're going to get a lot. Of, I, I'm yeah. sure you're going to get. So much pushback. Yeah, I mean, I, so before the book was written, like literally before the book was written, but after I signed the contract, it was trending on Twitter—not trending, trending, but it was going on on Twitter uh, as a race science book. You know, oh, wow. like, you know, I was like, can I write the book first, and then you can? <laughs> So look, I don't, I can't uh, refer to Dr. Tuff's uh, uh, research specifically. Um, there is research out there that attempts to look at the value of grit. Um, over time, the the impact of grit has, with new research, has diminished. It's also the case that um, grit tends to be correlated with IQ. So there's uh, uh, there are confounds going on here. Also, I hate to say it, but uh, there's evidence that grit, evidence that grit is also genetically uh, uh, influenced. So there's a um, look. Just the five-factor personality model is controversial, and for reasons I understand, and I don't endorse it in general. But what people call grit in the five-factor model is called conscientiousness, and that has been demonstrated to have a, a genetic basis as well, right? In other words, 
um, we shouldn't be quick to assume that grit is somehow something that every individual controls. Um, my best read of the matter is, I mean, again, like the thing is, like take that take that argument seriously. Why do kids therefore fail, right? In other words, and what do we think about the kids who fail? If we think they just don't have grit, then it becomes another morality play, right? And then it becomes a matter of saying, hey, you didn't have grit, kid. Sorry. That's why you're uh, living on disability and uh, have uh, $50,000 of student loan debt for the college that you didn't complete. You didn't have grit, you know? Uh, it, it's a way to moralize. It's a way to moralize away um, what are fundamentally political and economic problems. Right. It's like therefore, just like therefore, your life will be a slow-moving catastrophe. Yep. Right. <laughs> like, totally, totally justified. Yeah. All right. I cannot wait to read this book. Me too. Um, I'm very excited. Um, and yeah, uh, but. We're gonna have you stick around, Tony. Uh, we're, let's let's do some party favors. We got this bit that we do, okay. um, and we'll, we'll and you can jump in if you want um, if anything comes to mind. So let's, right, do, let's that. do We do this little bit when we can. Um, we could talk to you for another half hour, but then we wouldn't be able to do it. And it's kind of fun, and we want you to participate. So okay. we do um, party favors when we can. Democrat, Repub re reluctantly Republican party favors. Where we just tell them, we just give them unsolicited, very good advice. And if they listened, they would all do better. So let's start with the Democrats. I'll go first, then you guys can jump in. Okay. I think they're going to win the election. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and say that right now. I You're think, calling it. Yeah, I'm gonna call it. I think really? they're gonna win. Yeah, I'm starting to feel more confident they're going That's to win. That's bold. Because I think Corona is gonna get a lot worse. So it's dark why I think they're gonna win. I think it's I think the economy is gonna start tanking. I think they're gonna have to blame somebody, and the only power they have is is either to not vote or vote. I'm gonna call it. Um, they're, the, the Democrats are going to lose in four years if they don't pick the right VP and if they don't follow um, AOC's um, lead, which is start walking in the communities with a fucking mask on. Stop, stop going during elections. You need to be there all of the time. So start reaching out to young people that are fed up, that will clearly march in the streets for little or no pay and make them part of the movement. Don't make it about, to Freddie's point, the uh, kids coming out of Harvard to try to help you because that did not work the last round and the Clinton campaign was full of Harvard grads. Um, so that's my advice to them is you can feel pretty confident going in, but it could be a quick four years because you are inheriting a fucking disaster. Okay. Who do you think the VP is going to be? I think he's going to pick Harris, and that's a bad move. Yeah. 
Yeah, but I believe it's hers to lose. I think something they're going to really focus group it. But if they really uh, do, I, I think Harris, Warren. I mean, I, I I did want an African American female, but I would take Warren over Harris any day of the week. I mean, I, I think you need to think about the debate stage because Biden can't debate. Our vice president's going to be the one really that's going to be the voice, and that you you really need to to, to realize that. Yeah, I, if they pick Harris, it's like. They got the crime bill guy, and then they got another cop. Yeah, and it's like it's like two police. But, but I still think. <laughs> I, on the but to my point, I still think they can win no matter who the vice is. I just think they'll lose four years later. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I, Kamala Harris is not only a former prosecutor; she was a notoriously aggressive mm-hmm. prosecutor. She built her career on being the tough cop. Like that was that was her political identity, and we're in the middle of a, a incredibly passionate. Uh, police reform movement it's not a good look right i mean she was like arresting parents for truancy kids who were truant and something I like it's insane it's totally insane all right my thing for the dems and this is this is totally um uh this is like hatchet man stuff that they should be doing um which is they should be mentioning the name herman kane right right herman kane goes to tulsa two weeks later gets coronavirus and then that is now dead. He w- he was a presidential candidate. Yeah. Like he's a major figure a in the GOP. Like it or not, Herman Cain was a major figure in the GOP. Yes. Right. He he has been national profile, and he's dead. He's literally dead. And not to you know add more pain to his family or anything like that. Like I don't that that shouldn't happen. But it should mention Exhibit A of the horrible policies that are leading to death disproportionate with people of color um and here you have you know literally herman cain like that should be talked about okay so my uh, my advice to the to the democrats is you you have should have campaigns that are about something so i i mean i do a, a, a challenge to people about joe biden's campaign what is joe biden's campaign about no malarkey no malarkey, right? I mean, like, what is what is the the signature policy that he is pushing, right? What does his what is his campaign's message? What's its slogan? What's it? Uh, I mean, Hillary no Clinton, for all of her for all of her deficiencies, I knew what her campaign was. I had no idea what Joe Biden's campaign is, and I really think their strategy is to do nothing and wait it out because now with Corona, especially in the economy going in the tank because of Corona, all they have to do is not be Trump. But like, you should want to be about something. I mean, if I think what's a Joe Biden policy, all I can think of is that he's against Medicare for all. It's not even a positive, this is what I'm for, right? It's just, he's against Medicare for all. I don't know what the signature policy initiative is. I don't know what the the slogan is. I don't know what he is intending to do as a, as a leader of a country. It's just not Trump. And uh, that's not what we need. We need leadership. No, I agree. To my point, it could be a quick, another quick four-year and then the, a new Republican because there's not much going on there. So I agree mm-hmm. with you, which is why I think the VP pick is so fucking important because whether or not the Dems lose in four years or win, I don't think Biden's making it eight years with what I feel like is not all the marbles in place right now. Okay, this is the reluctant part, but we're going to do it. All right. GOP. Um, Gomet, you go first. Me go? Okay. All right. Um, 
I, I would say that the one thing Donald Trump has left um, is what kind of what he's doing. Um, and I think it's a powerful force is to basically double down on the racism. Right. That's the only strategy he's got left. And 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 as a as a cynical political strategy, it's a smart one because there is so much of that uh, in, in in this country. And, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm a pessimist about this stuff. I'm really excited about, of course, the I mean, call it a police reform movement I mean, is a near abolition movement, uh, defunding movement, divestment movement, whatever you want to call it, because there's, this is this is not tinkering you know there's been a lot of police reform right uh we talked to alex vitale the other week and we, we had a, a good history of that right this is a call for a fundamental rethinking of what the police do I like the that. backlash from that is going to be huge mm-hmm. and that's where the gop can capitalize politically right the backlash from that very you know righteous good and positive movement um the backlash for that could easily be whipped up into an electoral victory so i'm a little i'm not as sanguine as you tony about oh the dems got it um for this fall uh i still think uh it's going to be a squeaker which is crazy um but but it's going to be very close okay um I think if I were in the Republican Party and not in the administration, I would have a coup. I would try to get a group, as big a group as I can, to come out with a press conference and say, we got to get rid of this guy. I hate to tell you, they've already done it. It's no. called the Lincoln Project. Not really. And they're basically a bunch of uh, neocons. No, no, right? but that, I don't care what they stand for. I'm saying get a couple of the big names. Get your Lindsey Grahams. Get your Ted Cruz's. Get all the idiots in there. I'm not saying it's going to work, but the ship's going down. It's going down. Um, it's like the end of the Titanic when the when the band's playing. And I always watch when I watch that movie. I go, just get on the cello and float. Like you might you might live. You might one of you might make it out of here. And I'm not saying the Republican Party is by any means done. It's going to change, but. Um, I would try my best to survive what I think is going to be um, a bloodbath in November on a local level. Okay. I believe that. All right. All right. And you know, I wasn't wrong last time. <laughs> this is true. Uh, my advice to the Republicans would be to uh, draw some inspiration from uh, Amon Bundy. So, uh, or Amon Bundy, I don't know how you pronounce it. But, yeah, um, Amon Bundy. So Alan Bundy is not a, a good guy. He's not someone that I agree with. I mean, he's a libertarian, and I'm the opposite of a libertarian. But he is an actual libertarian because recently uh, there was an interview with him, or he went live on Snapchat or something, um, uh, and uh, to the absolute uh, enragement of the people who were watching, he defended Black Lives Matter and Antifa. And he said, you know... The problem's not the protesters, it's the government, and that the government is the, is the issue, and that the people had a right to be enraged, and the people had a right to, uh, to protest, uh, and he defended them, at least on, so far as on the grounds of saying, uh, 
they're legitimately expressing grievance against uh, the government. Now, Bundy is, was the, is the son of Cliven Bundy, uh, and they were involved in a big dispute with the Bureau of Land Management because I think their cattle was grazing on federal right. ground or whatever. But it was turned into this big to-do about um, you know, anti-government, um, small-c conservative uh, resistance to government intervention. Now, again, I'm not a Eamon Bundy fan. I'm a Bundy fan. But I do like people who are intellectually and ideologically consistent. And he, he expressed what a real libertarian would express about a street protest movement. And you could, there's a lot of Republicans who like to call themselves uh, libertarian because they think it sounds cooler than calling themselves a Republican. Um, you could draw inspiration from that and actually become a, a principled uh, small C conservative, uh, small government party rather than being the party of cultural and racial resentment against the coalition that the Democrats represent, right? Because that's all, it's literally all the, the, the Republican Party mm -hmm. is now. It's all just resentments. It's all cultural resentments. It's racial, uh, you know, thinly veiled racism and a rejection of, frankly, the liberal modernity. So maybe you could try having a set of principles instead because it's going to be a tough four years for you guys because I think that you're going to lose both the presidency and the Senate, so... I actually think that was so good. We might edit it out. <laughs> it's a really good idea. Too good. Yeah. So Make yeah, the like, face Bundy. The yeah. Face. So like what Rand Paul plays out every now and then, right? right. Yeah, but he's yeah. fake. Rand Paul. Yeah. Rand Paul's yeah. pro uh, legalization of marijuana, but then also wants to lock protesters up. He's an idiot. Right. Yeah. Well, Freddie, uh, as always, we could talk and listen to you for hours, but um, unfortunately, we can't do that. But we will read the book and. Um, we will stay in touch, but I, I'm, it's, I could have used you as a guidance counselor when I was in high school. <laughs> yeah, man. So listen, if you guys are interested, if the audience at home is interested in getting my book, um, I know some people are squeamish about using Amazon, and I completely get it. If you go to my website, frederickdebord.com, there's a buy my book thing on the right-hand sidebar. Um, you click on that, and there's like six different options for how to buy it, including from a, a, a group of independent bookstores that band together online to sell books so that if you feel a little bit better about it that way then that's one way to do it all right the other thing you could do which we do at my house is we search for what we want on amazon and then we call the local bookstore and say order this book we'll buy it yeah. from you and they do it's not that hard all right freddie thank you so much thanks um, a lot guys i really appreciate it yes good talk to, to see you, you again freddie all right talk to you soon guys